0: ...who don't know uh, and don't know me, this is called Stashtoberfest in the fire department. I don't do it because I think it looks hot or haughty, as Kenny would say. Um, My wife thinks I look ridiculous slash creepy. Um, My kids like it, they're a fan of it, but it'll be gone next week. And I just, this is the Lord's way of humbling me to let me come and stand before you looking like this. Um... Mark 2, are you guys there? Let me read, starting at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the story of Jesus calling a tax collector, Levi, to follow him. Most of us have heard this story or read it. It's very familiar to us. And the temptation can be to to, to read it and go, yeah, 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 I got it. I know it. And yet there is so much that lies underneath the surface of this. Um, there, there is a truckload of background going on here that when you do a little digging, you realize this story we read, as familiar as it is, is absolutely insane. And that, that, that's not an overstatement. It, it is absolutely unbelievable and shocking what it, we have just read and so this morning, we're going to do a little digging, okay? A little digging, hopefully some of this stuff rises to the surface and you, you, you can see it in just a, a bit of a fresh light to see how crazy Jesus is. Jesus has come, we're in Mark 2, to Capernaum, and, and he's going around healing people, healing the sick casting out demons, and and as was normal for a a rabbi or teacher, he's teaching in the synagogues. It, It was just commonplace for when you're a teacher and a rabbi, you show up at a synagogue, even if you're visiting, you were invited to come and offer a teaching. You're a teacher, let's hear him teach. Now, we don't do this much in our day and age today, but it does happen. Probably Eight, nine years ago, I was, me and Taylor and her family were on vacation in Virginia. And and the hotel we were staying at, we we befriended our waitress who served us all week long, just this doll of a lady, this big, black, bubbly woman who we just fell in love with. And one morning, she saw us praying together as a family at the table, and she said, oh, you guys are Christians. You have to come to our church tomorrow. My husband's the minister. Would you please come and worship with us? Now, when I'm on vacation, I love to go visit other churches and worship with strangers and to see what's going on in other parts of the, of the country and world. And and um, like, absolutely. So we load up in the car Sunday morning and we're driving there. Now, I, I'm a pastor on vacation. And as a pastor's kid, I also know what can happen to pastors on vacation. And so I just, I, I said to Taylor and her family, listen, I said, just please, whatever you do, don't, don't let them know I'm a pastor. And my wife's like, you think you're that special? Like, who cares, right? And I'm like, no, you just, I, I, I've seen it. I've grown up with it. I just, I'm on vacation. And they all agreed. They didn't totally understand or get it. And, uh, and so we show up. Now, I'm on vacation. I've got T-shirts, shorts, and flip-flops in Virginia. And we show up at Shiloh Full Gospel Baptist Church. I'm the only white dude there. It's awesome, and and they all come in in their zoot suits, and and they march down the aisle. I mean, that's how worship starts. I'm like, what in the world? This is awesome. Well, we have fellowship time, and that's when everyone just gets up and hugs, and it goes on forever, and you realize, I should have eaten a bigger breakfast, because we are going to be here for hours, And, and our waitress spots us. She comes up, gives me a big bear hug, and she pulls back and looks me in the eye. She's like... You a minister, ain't you? <laughs> I'm like I could lie here. I'm like, "Yeah, surprise. See, I knew it. The Holy Ghost told me." I'm like, "Roger that." <laughs> and, and so we sit down and and her husband, the pastor gets up. I'm told we have a visiting minister in our midst this morning. <laughs> And after this next song, I'm going to invite him to come up and give the morning sermon. (laughs) I'm like, you gotta be, I just, that was inappropriate, sorry. And I'm sitting there and my wife is just cracking up and I'm sitting there just terrified. I mean, I didn't even bring my Bible. You know, I get this old King James version. I'm like from the pew and I'm like, I don't know. Worst sermon ever. And you're like, no, this one's pretty good. This one's pretty bad. Uh, you know, it's up there. Um, that's what you do in, in certain cultures. You're a teacher. Guess what? Come teach. Jesus, you're a teacher. You're in our synagogue. Come teach. Now, we often think of Jesus' world as kind of backwoods, small town, kind of uh, um, simple and all. They They have unearthed the synagogue from Capernaum here, from Jesus' day. I've been there, I've stood there, I've seen it, I've touched it. They they have discovered a school that is attached to this synagogue, and it's the largest school ever discovered in a synagogue until 1500 AD. Why is that important? Well, Jesus has shown up at Harvard, Jesus has shown up at Yale or Princeton or Biola. You know, it, it's like he, he's in this educational center in, of, the, of this region and he comes and he's teaching and he is impressing everyone. I, I hope you, you realize how brilliant Jesus was and is. That there, there's never been a smarter person to ever walk the, this planet than Jesus and so he's standing up in, with the re- religious, educated elite, and, and they are just marveling at them. So, here we are in Capernaum. Discipleship in a religious educational city is a very commonplace thing. But what does it take to become a disciple? When we hear that disciple, you know, word disciple, we we kind of have all you know certain images. But 2,000 years ago, if someone said, follow me, what is he referring to? What would it take to become a disciple in that culture? Well, it's a highly educated culture, and every one of us would have gone to school. The elementary school was called Beth Sefer. Boys and girls go to the synagogue every day, are taught by Torah teachers or teachers of the law. Their curriculum is slightly different. Boys are taught the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and in the Torah, they are taught history. They are taught geography. They're even taught math. And in Beth Sefer, they would memorize, the goal was to memorize the whole Torah. Now, obviously, not everyone could. There, there are certain levels of ability and skill that we have. Not everyone can, can make it that far, but it was expected that you gave it everything you had to succeed. Now, girls, their curriculum was different. Their study revolved around Deuteronomy and Psalms and Proverbs and Leviticus. This is why much of worship was done in the home. It was done around the the, the family table. And the worship leaders were mainly the mothers. If you've ever, ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you've seen Golda lighting the candles and saying the Sabbath prayer and offering a blessing to her children. That, that's how it, it was in this culture. So girls from an early age on go and learn the passages that relate to worship. Now, if you're a girl, your education is over at age 12. You become of marriageable age. You are done with schooling. You move into home slash family life. A boy would continue his education if he had memorized the Torah. This next level was called Beth Midrash. He went from ages 12 to 15. And here you move beyond memory to actually understanding the text. Still in the synagogue, still taught by Torah teachers. And you would do this not full-time, but part-time as you would learn the family trade, whether it was to be a fisherman, or a carpenter, uh, in the pottery business. And in this time, you're you're learning your family trade, you would learn to understand the rest of the Hebrew Bible, most of what we have here, ages 12 to 15. At ages 15, most of them are done. It required so much skill and time and dedication to get to this level, but to move on to the next required so much more that very few people ever got there. It was called Beth Talmud. Now notice, only boys. They continue their study of the whole Hebrew Bible, but for the first time, they're not taught in the synagogue, they're not taught by Torah teachers, they're taught by rabbis or these teachers. And they're taught not just memorization, but they are taught a, a, a rabbi's interpretation of it. What we call the, their yoke. That was their set of beliefs and understanding in the Old Testament scriptures. And we see Jesus' yoke. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's talking about his yoke. And his yoke is different from the rest of many other, the other rabbis or teachers in his time. So a disciple would study with a rabbi from ages 15 to 30 if they could keep up. And they would choose a rabbi based on his yoke and they would approach the rabbi and, said, and would say, may I follow you? And the rabbi would test them. Quote for me Leviticus. That's third grade. How about Deuteronomy? That's fifth grade. This is one question I found that they asked. 17 times, Amos takes a phrase out of Deuteronomy and uses it at the basis for his prophecy. Give me the 17 phrases and tell me what the 17 prophecies are. I mean, this is insane. Only very, it's why very few people and boys would make it. And this kind of questioning would go on for, for days and days. And somewhere, most likely, most often, along the line, the rabbi would say, my son... You are a godly young man. You know the text, but you just don't have what it takes to follow me. You don't have what it takes to become a rabbi or teacher yourself. Go home. Go go be a fisherman. Go be a carpenter. Go be a stonemason and live the text for God. Most boys were, were turned down by rabbis because only the cream of the crop would make it. I've heard it explained like this. How many of us as boys played basketball? Been out in the, in the you know driveway shooting hoops over the garage? And for many people, there came a time when you realized, you know, if I actually practice and get serious, I can play at the high school level. And so mom and dad send them to camps and to, to clinics, and you realize, man, I've got what it takes, and they make it to this impressive level of high school varsity basketball. Well, how how many high school basketball players actually have the ability to go on and play Division I college ball? I mean, there's, there's a big gap now. And as, because it's impressive to be at that level. But to move from college, you know, Division I college level to, to NBA material, very few ever make it. And it was the same thing when it came to discipleship. Very few. At age 30, though, if you did make it, you know, this this Yoda master of Jewish religious life was was done with you, and you yourself are now this Jedi Jewish rabbi type person. That's my interpretation of, uh, of, of life there. Now, what age does Jesus become a rabbi? At age 30, he's following the system here. Now, during this time, life wasn't just about information. It wasn't just about getting knowledge. It was about becoming like your rabbi. So you listen, and you watch, and you follow, and you tag along wherever he goes. There there was a a, a well-known phrase, be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which meant as your rabbi is shuffling along these dusty streets and these dusty roads, and he's kicking up dust, would that dust cover you because you are following so closely to him? So you eat and sleep with your rabbi, You, you pray and read with your rabbi, when he laughs, you're watching him. When he cries, you're watching him. When he gets upset, you, you, you sit back and watch and watch how he responds. When he's sad, you sit back and you watch how he responds because you want to learn from him and become like him. It was the most intimate relationship out there, even beyond a father-son they used to say, your father brought you into this world. It is your rabbi which brings you into the life of the world to come. Discipleship was a serious matter. Now, what does it tell us that G, the, the, the men Jesus is going around calling are fishing or here in our text this morning, collecting taxes? means they hadn't made it. They didn't have what it takes to become anyone's disciple. These are average, if not below average, ordinary men. They weren't the top shelf individuals that our society or our world would look at and expect Jesus to call. And what's interesting is... Where where in this culture, a student would approach a rabbi and ask, may I follow you? Here, Jesus goes against the norm. He goes to them. And he says, you, Levi, follow me. These are not cream of the crop people. They failed somewhere. And yet, this rabbi who is just impressing everyone in his teaching asks him and invites them to follow him. I mean, are you starting to see how just insane this whole scene is? Now, Levi is a tax collector. Is that a popular person in this world or a not so popular person? Right? Are you liked as a tax collector? No, no. no. Um, Tax collectors were Jewish men who had turned their backs on their fellow Jews and sold out to their Roman oppressors. They collect taxes for Rome and the way they made their living was by just adding a charge on top of the tax and Rome did not care how much that surcharge was. They just wanted their money. They didn't care. And so you have tax collectors who are getting rich and lining their pockets out of the hard-earned money and goods of the poor. So this guy's getting richer, and you're just getting poorer and poorer and poorer. Not a good way to make friends, right? And here's Levi sitting in a tax booth near the border where he'd collect tolls from the commercial traffic going in and out. Now, most likely, studies say, he is there collecting taxes on the fish that are caught in the Sea of Galilee. Have we run across any fish, fishermen in our story yet? Do you think Peter and James and John and Andrew, you think they knew this guy? Oh yeah, they had to pay him every time they bought fish or caught fish. And so when Jesus comes to Levi and says, Levi, follow me. You can just see the other disciples going, whoa, whoa, Jesus, hold on. Like, you should... We know this guy. He's been stealing our money for years. He's not the kind of person you want. Jesus, you don't want him, implying we, we, we don't want him. And Jesus yet calls this man and invites him to follow him. And this guy's floored. And we know that because he calls all his friends and he throws a banquet. He, he throws a meal together and he invites all his friends who happen to be tax collectors and sinners themselves, right? And he, Jesus comes and shares a meal with them. Now, what Jesus is doing here just torpedoes the whole Jewish system here. which is why the leaders had a problem with it. Look at Mark 2, verses 16 again. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, their reaction, totally, totally understandable, because what Jesus is doing here is just Scandalous. In this meal, or culture, a meal was a sacred thing because the prophets would talk about life in the age to come, life when God would be ruling perfectly and completely. And they described it as a banquet, as a meal, where we got to sit and dine and fellowship with God Almighty. So a meal, it's a sacred thing. It's a holy occasion. It's not just a time to fill your belly And because it embodied their hope, it also embodied their identity as God's holy, separate people. We need to stay separate for God. So, what does it mean to be holy? Well, you obey the Old Testament commands. But secondly, you stay away from that which is going to get you unclean. You separate from them. That's why how you ate, who you ate with, what you ate, all this was what was central to them. And when you have a history that teaches you that, you know, exile is a result of mingling with other pagan nations and forsaking your God, you're thrown into exiles, what Jeremiah's all about. Well, here they are in the promised land and they are still in some form of exile as they're being oppressed by the Romans. So, What's what's the way to get out from underneath this oppression? Holiness. Stay separate. Don't mingle with them. And because this meal is a sign of acceptance, it's it's a sign of of intimate fellowship, you as a good, God-fearing, law-abiding Jew, you do not eat with those who are unclean. But Jesus does something that is just remarkable here because for him, the goal wasn't separation. He didn't keep his distance from the unclean. He moves forward to them. Jesus comes close. He comes close to the last, the least, the lost. He he comes to the outcast, the sinner, the unclean. And in a world where you believe that, you know, the clean would be made unclean if they touched the unclean, here you have Jesus, the clean, coming to the unclean, touching them. But instead of him becoming unclean, the unclean find healing. They they find restoration. And that's why Jesus says in verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came to heal the sick. The healthy are fine. The healthy have no need of a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. So who does a doctor hang out with? Sick people. Now, when we read a story like this, we we can often be tempted to try to identify ourselves with the hero of the story, right? Right? Happens with any story, whether it's a book, whether it's a movie. We like to put ourselves in the place of the hero. Who's the hero of this story? Jesus, right? And so, if we do that initially, we, you know, we, we might come to some conclu- some conclusions about life and relationships and ministry and how to interact with with those who are unclean or those who are outcasts. We, we want to emulate and be like Jesus, and all. There is a place for that. But that is not the place to start. The goal is not to put ourselves in Jesus' place. Our goal is to look at this unclean tax collector, this outcast, and to stare at him. And stare at him and stare at him until you realize that you are looking at yourself in the mirror that 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 man that that outcast that's you that's me i am levi i am the sinner i am the unclean i am The sick. And Jesus came for me. Do we realize that we are the sick people in the story? Now there are two kinds of people. The first are those who are sick. And they know it. And the sick know that they need a doctor. They they know they need help. Why is Levi throwing the party? Well, you know, why the celebration? He knew he was sick. He, he knew he's unclean. He's a tax collector. He, he doesn't deserve this. And you know what his name even implies? Guess what line of family he most likely came from? The Levites a line of godly men who served as worship leaders in the temple holy men godly men clean men and now here he is so far removed from that heritage you know some some way sometime his life got off course and he ended up on the opposite spectrum of life no longer a clean worshipper of god but an unclean jewish wretch He knew he was sick. What a great time to be reminded of our need for healing. Now, let me just add something here, because I know the temptation in my own heart. And that is when I realize that I'm unclean, there's a danger of trying to heal myself, trying to... Fix myself on my own. This week, circle of trust here, right? Welcome to my world. Um, I'm in the back studying, trying to be all godly and all, studying the Bible. And Taylor comes to me, opens the door, and says, Your daughter is out of control. Um, our daughter, right? She and Taylor, our nine-year-old and Taylor, had this episode that it's just—it's never gotten this bad. Um, Honestly, I'm even embarrassed to tell you what it was. It was just bad. And so I'm sitting there, my heart sinks into my my gut. I close my Bible, and now this is blocking my goal of getting stuff accomplished and so now i'm kind of heated i'm mad at her actions i'm mad at at being interrupted and so i storm into the kitchen and as i walk in i see my nine-year-old daughter holding a bottle of vinegar with a mouthful of vinegar in her mouth refusing to spit it out and tears coming down her face We use vinegar as a little teaching tool, right? You say sour words, guess what you're gonna get in your mouth? Um, Thought is better than hot sauce. Um, And so Thompson, Thompson realized how dirty she was and how dirty she felt. And without even any prompting, she had gone by herself and taken swigs of vinegar, trying to wash it out. And I stood there and and I just, babe, no, spit it out. And she just refused. She kept refusing. Finally, I got her to spit it in the sink and I offered her a glass of water. She's like, no, daddy, no, daddy, no, daddy. She was painfully aware of her sickness and her, 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 her disease, her uncleanness, the, the hardness of her heart, the ugliness of her heart. And I'm like, vinegar is not what you need. Vinegar will, will bring about some behavioral mechanical change. That might be fine and all for some reason. You don't need vinegar. You need the Jesus. You, you need the cross in all this, babe. We can't clean ourselves up no matter how hard we try. And I fear that when we come to Jesus, so many of us think, I got to have it all together. I got to clean myself up before I'm ever going to be accepted by him. If that were the case, I would never be accepted. I mean, this, I was reminded this week where we had some um, company coming on Friday. And so we, every couple times a year, we'll pay for someone to come and clean the house. And I come out of my room and Taylor's just running around the house doing this and that. I'm like, what what are you doing? Why the frenzy? She said, oh, I've got to clean up. I'm like, clean up? I thought we hired someone to come and do this. Like, let's get it dirty. Let's, (laughs) Let's not try to... And she said, no, I've got to clean it so the cleaners can come in and do their job. And I thought, that's kind of revealing of our culture where so many of us, we look at the church and we look at people in there and we wear our Sunday's best. This is the best I got. And, and, and we, we dress ourselves up to look like we've got it together. And then we come in here and we're afraid to have all our stuff exposed. Rightfully so. There's shame and sin. And, and yet we give off this perception that we got it together, that we're clean. And then no one feels safe. No one feels like they can relate because we're all well aware of the dirtiness and filthiness and crud in our own hearts. And so there's great freedom and knowing you're sick and recognizing it and saying, I need help and that help is in the touch of Jesus. And the cleanup, that's up to Jesus. Jesus. That's his job. And and the great, the good news is, he promises to do it. It'll take a lifetime to get it done. But he'll get us home looking just like Jesus. The other people, that's those who are sick, but they refuse to admit it. And oftentimes, just maybe because they make themselves look healthy on the outside. But you know what's worse than being sick? Being sick. And refusing to admit it. As a fireman, eighty percent of what I do is respond to medical calls. Most people are fine, and they think they're sick. You know, I, I've gone on people. I, I had a nightmare. I need to go to the hospital. I'm like, dude, you, no, you don't. You're fine. <laughs> um, I. It's amazing. People they think they're sick, but but they're fine but it's amazing how many people will tell you that they're fine when they're in fact in desperate need. And usually it's a family member or stranger even who comes upon them and is like, dude, you are in bad shape, I'm, I'm calling 911. And we get a call to respond. I, I, I have been on, on people, I mean, legs that were cut off, got infected, and maggots are eating them, and the guy is like, oh, "I'm fine." I'm like, "No, you're not. You're rotting. You are rotting. Smell it. I, you're rotting. You need help." And yet, I can't force these people to go with me. That's kidnapping legally. I mean, I can't make them go. And yet you you are sick. And that's that was the problem of the Pharisees in this story. They observed the law. They knew the Bible. They didn't cuss. Their homes are in order. They went to synagogue. They got it all together. And they didn't see themselves as sick in need of help, which is why they can't stomach what Jesus is doing. And it's interesting. The the parallel account of this in Matthew 9, there's a phrase that Matthew records where he quotes from Hosea 6 when he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but the sinners. The same parallel account of Jesus calling Levi and then this party afterwards. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's using a remes. A remez was a rabbinical way of teaching, which meant hint. And, and so, and it was very common in the day, you quote a part of a verse, but you've got the whole thing in mind. And we can do this today. If, what am I referring to when I say, in a galaxy far, far away? <laughs> Star Wars, right? If I want to tell you a story about a lovely lady, here's a story of a lovely lady, All right? Yeah. Brady Bunch. What if I say the Lord is my shepherd? What psalm am I referring to? What passage am I referring to? Jesus is doing that here in Matthew in this account. Let me read for you what Hosea 6 says. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers trapped with blood as robbers lie in wait for man so the priests band together in the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing Israel is defiled okay you want to know why they, tried to, that, why they wanted Jesus dead because he's doing stuff like this insane stuff like this but Jesus' point is listen you don't think you're sick but guess what you are you are. We're all filthy. We're all unclean. What's the Bible teach? We have all sinned and fallen short. We're all screwed up. And why is this good news? It's good news because this is the person Jesus came for. He didn't come for the healthy. They're fine. Problem is, they don't exist. Only you And I exist. And we are up against a lot of competition these days. I mean, Oprah is ruining our culture. You're awesome. Really? It's Kenny, you know, put on a Starbucks cup. You'll be reminded bright and early. You know, and parents, we're, we're scared that our kids are gonna end up in therapy if we tell them how jacked up they are. Listen, And I'll tell you, seriously, they know it. They don't need lies to tell them they're fine or they're awesome when they're not. I mean, they are wonderful. They're made in the image of God. They're precious to me. They are loved beyond imagination. But their hearts are evil and wicked and sick. And in a culture where we say, oh, you've lost, here's a trophy. We all, you know, we don't wanna hurt anyone's feelings. You're all great. They need truth, not lies, to come and invade that dark place. You, I mean, do we recognize that we are just all messed up? This is good news. It, it, what time do we end? 12.30. 12.30, yeah. Um, circle of trust, you're right. Um, no, one time I'm, I was doing a sermon on marriage, and Taylor and I had just gotten into this, big fight the day before it's kind of standard of like when I'm getting ready to preach and you know pressure's on and I well I wake up in the morning and I go to my notes to sit down before I'm getting ready to go preach on marriage and I see a note says you're full of crap I'm like and I start laughing and she's right she's right I mean, I, and, and I just started laughing. I'm like, oh, so I go and I'm, I'm just like holding up my notes with her note on it going, babe, you're right. I'm so sorry. And, you know, went in in total, just weakness and trepidation. Now, when you're talking about how jacked up you're right, I'm expecting to find the note of like, oh, you're right on target. You know, <laughs> we're all messed up. We are all in desperate need of a savior. And to find Jesus calling us, those who aren't qualified, those who haven't made the cut, those who are not cream of the crop, to come and be his disciple and to follow him into this new life. If he can do that with a tax collector or an unclean sinner, I promise you he can do that for you. And I don't care what your past is. I don't care the, you know, what, what wreckage or debris is, you know, you've left in your wake. I don't care you know, how many relationships have, you know, you, you've destroyed in sin. I don't care about you know, addictions or things that have been hang-ups for you or things that are constant struggles. Jesus still comes to us as sick and says, I want to heal you. Will you come and follow me and let me heal you? I mean, this this is just, I hope you're floored when you read this, this text. That Nothing we have done is too big for Jesus. His love is deep enough for us. His touch is powerful enough to heal us and to transform us. And his forgiveness is wide enough to turn us wretched sinner and make him into a son and daughter. And so I hope that he does this and encourages us with this this morning, to follow him and to be made clean. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, um, we are well aware of the filth in our heart and the dirtiness in our lives And Lord, where some may consider that bad news, we consider it good news because you tell us that you came for people like us. And so this morning, we just um, proclaim our utter dependence and need for you to come and to make us new, to come and to heal our hearts, to heal us of sickness. Lord, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that even as we constantly just blunder about through life, that you are there to pick us up, embrace us, and to remind us that we are sons and daughters. So as we move forward in grace, would you continue to shape us and transform us? Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this ministry. In Jesus' name. Amen.